Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the relationship between religion, identity, and place. Often, when we think about the relationship between place and Islam, we tend immediately to think about Mecca, perhaps also Medina, occasionally perhaps some other historic Muslim cities, perhaps Cairo, Istanbul, even Delhi or Samarkand. But we don't necessarily think of the many other pilgrimage places, and indeed the many other places of memory and of historical identity that different Muslim communities all around the world have always used to make their religious identity and indeed their own sense of regional and even ethnic identity. As a case study for this larger and more general process, we're going to be looking at the Uyghur peoples of the region of Xinjiang in what is now the People's Republic of China. We'll be looking over a period of centuries, looking at how the identity of the Uyghurs or indeed the identity of the people who now call themselves Uyghurs before they began to call themselves Uyghurs in the 20th century. And we'll be looking at how their identity and their religious identity in particular was shaped through their interactions with their own places of pilgrimage, their places of memory, and the texts in the Persian and their more local Turki language that brought those places and those historical memories and identity to life. Joining me in this conversation is Dr. Ryan Thumb. He is Senior Lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Manchester. Ryan Thumb is the author of The Sacred Roots of Uyghur History, which was published in 2014 by Harvard University Press. It was also awarded the Fairbank Prize for East Asian History by the American Historical Association in 2015. Hello, Ryan. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about place and how place relates to the identity, culture and religion of the people who live there. So perhaps we can start out by me asking you to describe the place or region that on modern maps of China is called Xinjiang. Um, Xinjiang is an enormous region, um, and I think um, what we'll be mostly talking today uh, about is the southern uh, region. The northern region is a, a steppe region, um, uh, which for a long time has been inhabited by nomads. The southern part of, of Xinjiang is a enormous basin surrounded by mountains, um, oases along the edge of the mountain. So if you were to enter uh, Xinjiang today from, say, Pakistan or India, should the border uh, open, 
you would be crossing some of the highest mountains in the world. You might go under the shadow of K2, the second highest peak. Um, and then you would start following a road probably down alongside some sort of stream carrying uh, melted glacial water. And that stream would eventually enter this sometimes sandy, sometimes stony, always dusty desert called the Taklamakan uh, Desert. And then after a while of traveling that road, you would enter an oasis. And that oasis would be um, a large patch of land, many dozens of kilometers or more than 100 kilometers wide, watered by canals that divert those streams coming from the, the, the uh, glacial melt. And you would be wandering down roads that were lined on each side by tall poplar trees. Uh, behind them, there would be wheat fields and fruit orchards and melon patches. Um, and eventually you would probably reach a walled city or a city whose walls have now been uh, removed, um, such as the famous town of Kashgar. Uh, and in those walled cities, which could be found in each major oasis, you would find a very dense urban architecture in mud brick uh, and fired brick with, with winding narrow roads, sometimes with houses that go over the roads, so the roads become uh, tunnels. Houses with very little on the outside in terms of decoration, but on the inside, they often have fabulous courtyards. And inhabiting all of this oasis um, uh, 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 environment are a group of people who today we call the uh, Uyghurs, people who speak the Turkic language, people are um, vast majority of whom are uh, Muslims. So we're getting a sense then of this 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 geographical environment, this geographical place, and and the, the modern Chinese province of Xinjiang, which we'll get to that later in a sense, but it's it, it's a Chinese name for the region, isn't it? Because that meant a great new region when it was conquered in the 18th century as part of the the, the last great Chinese empire, the Qing Empire, but. The province of, or the region of Xinjiang is, it's larger than many, or indeed most countries on the world map, isn't it? it it's simply enormous. Yes. And, and, and although we're, we're framing it as indeed it is part of the, 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 the nation state of China today as the legacy of the earlier Chinese Qing empire, it's really actually in a sense a geographical continuum with the regions we'll call Central Asia, or indeed those stands as they are on the map today with the, the steppe lands, the desert lands, the mountains, those oasis towns and the kind of traditional architecture that you've you've described. I mean, my, in my own travels there, actually, I was struck by how much the traditional architecture was like parts of Afghanistan, for example, or, or indeed yeah. other parts of, let's say, Uzbekistan. Yeah. Um, normally, when people ask me what it's like there, I, I say, um, well, if you've been to northern Afghanistan, it's probably a lot like that. And if you were you know, blindfolded and, and, and set down in Xinjiang, you might think you're in Afghanistan. This, this is no longer the case in the last five or 10 years, the region has been transformed tremendously by the, the Chinese uh, state um, and very intentionally to remove these traditional um, spatial configurations. Uh, but yeah, culturally it's, it feels very much like Bukhara or um, someplace in, in uh, Northern Afghanistan the literary language up until 50 or 100 years ago was Persian uh, for many of the most educated people. There are also things written in the Turkic language. The architecture looks very much the same. 
So it's very much of a piece. And, and in fact, it, is, it was known by uh, Western geographers in the 19th century, not as Xinjiang, it's Chinese word for the new territory, but as Eastern Turkestan, meaning simply the Eastern part of, of uh, Central Asia. Right, and that 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 term Turkestan, indeed, as you mentioned, that the, the Turkey language isn't the same as what we now think of as Turkish, the the Turkic language of the modern right. nation state of Turkey, but it's part of again that that linguistic continuum that that reaches from what's now Turkey and indeed parts of Iran and and through Central Asia with the various, I, I suppose, kind of Turkic spoken languages and indeed the the written Turkey that emerges um, in a, in a sense out of in the shadow of Persian, in a sense, you know, kind of Persian, the older literary language of the Eastern Islamic world, yeah. another sort of geographical framing in, in which Xinjiang would fit into, I guess. Yeah. So, so we have these several, as you've said, these several uh, literary languages or the several languages of, 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 of Turkey, as it's called there, which develops into the modern Uyghur language, isn't it, in a sense? Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, as in many other regions of the Muslim world, then, including those we've, we've spoken about in, by comparison, all over Xinjiang, there were many shrines, many religious shrines, many Muslim shrines, many, in some cases, Sufi shrines that long served as pilgrimage centers for the, the ordinary people and indeed for many of the, the Uyghur elites of, of, of the region. So, can you tell us why were these shrines so important and meaningful to these Turkic Muslims, whom we now call the, the Uyghurs. Yeah, pr probably the easiest way to explain the significance of shrines to people is to give a particular example. So um, one, one place that's interesting because the government allowed it to function as it, as it had for a, a long time until very recently is the shrine of Imam Asim near the town of, of Hotan. This is the purported burial site of a saint who fought in battles between um, the Muslim Karahanid dynasty and their Buddhist enemies in the uh, uh, 11th century AD. And every year in late May um, or early June, large numbers of people, tens of thousands of people come to visit this shrine. So this is, in, in a sense, this is uh, shrines that uh, uh, celebrate figures from the period of, of, of the region's Islamization, as in many other regions of the Islamic world, the sort of the, the, some of the foundational Muslim figures become key to sort of uh, regional identity, to sort of in a sense ethnic identity, and in, in, indeed to to space as well, which we're which we're looking at today. Not unlike, I guess, in places like in in, in Europe. I mean, the the shrine of Saint. Uh, or the, the Canterbury with the shrine, of, or at least the, the, the place founded by St. Augustine who brought Christianity to, to England. So yeah, so tell us more about these, these shrines and indeed why they're so important. Yeah, so, well, those, uh, as you said, they often do commemorate uh, foundational figures historically. Um, they also, they, but they can commemorate a wide kind of different foundational figures. So, you know, there's one that commemorates the seven sleepers of Ephesus, these figures in the Quran who are supposed to have escaped persecution by uh, sleeping for what is it, two or three centuries in a cave. There's, you know, others celebrate um, uh, Sufis. It's mystical, esoteric, um, uh, uh, spiritual guides. 
Um, so there's a whole range of the kinds of figures who can be commemorated there. That is important for um, the question of identity and how shrines help people who visit them understand their his place historically. But it's also crucial to, to remember that the shrines have perhaps more important roles for individuals in a, in a uh, more basic, more practical way. So a shrine is a place where you can go, you can bring an offering, maybe a flag, maybe a, uh, an animal to slaughter for a ritual uh, meal, um, oil to burn for the saint, and you can make a request for something because the saint is, the spirit of the saint is thought to be very much present, very much aware and, and able to intercede for you with God. So you can ask, for example, for an illness to be cured, to have a male son, as so many people um, uh, wanted, to have a, a, a good crop for the year, to have your sins forgiven, whatever whatever kind of um, request you might have from God, you can you can ask for it there. And one of the interesting things about shrines um, uh, among the Uyghurs, and I, I think this also um, holds true in a lot of parts of Muslim majority societies, is that they have more of a physical sacredness than a mosque does. Whereas a mosque is more of a sort of purified place where you can, you can pray. The shrine has in its very structure some sort of connection to the divine. So much so that pilgrims will sometimes eat a little piece of dirt that falls off the mud brick or grab something from the mortar between the bricks and, and swallow it um, or bathe in the sand around uh, the shrine. You can add to this a whole lot of other um, uh, roles this had. This is where you celebrate various holidays. Um, uh, gamblers would, would gamble there, thieves would pickpocket there, Mar markets appear where the major festivals are. And in something that's very important for my own interest in work, people, professional storytellers would tell the stories, not only of that shrine, but of other other heroes, but particularly it's important that they would tell, and the, and the religious personnel there would tell the story of who was buried at that shrine. And that is one of the rare moments where the masses would have access to historical teaching, not just about universal Islamic history, say in the Quran, which is the ultimate historical text, but also teaching about their, the history of the place that they're from. So in a sense, then, these, these, these shrines become is what kind of anchors of memory or anchors of historical identity yeah. that people can actually go to, they can interact with, and, and also, in a way, interact with, with the, the holy dead buried there or commemorated there in the sense right. that they're believed to have perhaps passed through there rather than necessarily have been actually buried there in some cases. And, and, and these shrines can, can vary tremendously, can't they, and actually in terms of what they physically are as yeah. well as where they are. I mean, from... I suppose the most famous and the most architecturally distinguished, I guess, from a certain aesthetic sense, is the famous shrine of Afat Hoja, the 17th right. century great Naqshbandi Sufi, who, whose heirs actually founded a state, didn't they? Kind of, they were Sufis, yeah. but also political leaders in in Kashgar, the main uh, the, the main historical city, at least of, 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 of Xinjiang. And that, in a sense, is if I'm sort of trying to describe from memory, green tiles, uh, ceramics with a dome that really, really again, very visibly reflects the, the continuum of, 
of Muslim mausoleums yes. and sacred yeah. architecture across across most of the Islamic world, in a way, really. And then there were these other smaller shrines, aren't there? I suppose at the other end of the of the I don't know if it's a hierarchy, I mean, or at least the other end of the architectural spectrum, which might just right. be um, a mud mound with a few flags on them that That's are right. perhaps in the middle yeah. of or, well, I was in the middle of the desert, in some way in the desert as well. But all of these are pilgrimage yeah. places, as you've described in your work. That's right. And they, there's, while there are these fantastic green domed um, uh, structures that are rare, but not, you know, uh, not vanishingly rare, um, in some ways, the more common kind of shrine is that sort of mud or earthen lump, which gets its architectural expression largely from the pilgrims themselves who will bring flags with them, uh, you know, bring tree trunks with, uh, with, with cloth on them and add them. And the really popular shrines can get enormous uh, conglomerations of flags that can go um, a couple or three dozen meters into the air. And these look like enormous brooms uh, standing out in, in, the, uh, in the desert. And they look also very much like some um, Tibetan uh, shrines, and there may be uh, there may be some uh, some connection there. And one of the things that's interesting about that kind of shrine is that when you visit it, you not only are you seeing some, you know, if you, in the case of a beautiful green dome tiled shrine like Afakhoja, what are you looking at? You're looking at the proof that someone very powerful wanted to pay to build this building. But when you look at the enormous conglomeration of flags, you're looking at the proof that thousands and thousands of people have wanted to visit this place. And you can see some of the flags are rotting and falling apart. You can see the continuity over time and the continued popularity. And you can, you can look at that and recognize that you share something with people you'll never meet who come from um, all over the region um, uh, to learn about the, this and, and to worship and to venerate and to request from the same, uh, the same historical figure. That's a really interesting point you, you raise there, Ryan, isn't it? Because th there is, let's say in a sense, that there's an architecture of official or state-based memory, or even let's say mm -hmm. elite memory more generally, which, which might be on the one hand, the, the grand mosques or indeed mausolea, whether religious mausoleums or indeed the great imperial mausoleums of, of the emperor Akbar or, or, or indeed Shah Jahan in India, the Taj Mahal, of course, or, or indeed they might be the Sufi mausolea, like, like the, the one of Afak Hoja, as I said, who, who's, who, whose heirs led a, effectively a Sufi Islamic state for half a century or thereabouts in Xinjiang mm -hmm. in the 17th and 18th century or indeed the official architecture of, 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 of the People's Republic of China and there indeed their architecture of official history and official memory. But on the other hand, these mud brick shrines, which perhaps, or indeed not even mud brick, I mean, kind of mud mounds with these flags and so on, which is a description of mine, which is rather poor because it really aesthetically undersells them. There've been photographs yeah. made by a number of photographers in recent years and they really are extraordinarily beautiful and extraordinary creations that, as you said so so insightfully, are collective, I'm not sure architectural is the word, but let's say collective yeah. architectural creations that really reflect the fact that this is collective memory 
collective yeah. identity, a collective sense of the past that is being commemorated there by the people, you know, by larger groups of right. people, indeed the, the Uyghur pilgrims. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can see that same kind of um, visible multiplicity, visible visibility of multiple authors and voices in the um, manuscript texts that are associated with some of these shrines, where the technology of the manuscript, which requires this very tedious copying, which is highly prone to error, actually makes clear to the reader that there are multiple versions of the same um, book and actually speaks to the multiplicity of acts of copying. And then again, to the collective nature of the production of knowledge um, uh, about, uh, about the past. And so, you know, one of the reasons these shrines and the, particularly the, the texts that go with the shrines, these um, uh, manuscripts called tezkiras, uh, T-A-Z-K-I-R-A, simple transliteration. Um, most of the big shrines had one of these manuscript uh, uh, titles that went with them and was different in every one of its iteration, physical um, uh, iterations. And I think the connection of these manuscripts of the tales of the saints with these places, all of which show the community participation. And I should say the manuscripts also often have you know, marginalia written by people who are just on the edge of literate in some in some cases, allowing them to participate in the continued creation of history. So all of these two things, I think, wielded a great deal of power in creating a historical imagination that could be regional, not just um, one oasis or one city, despite the fact that there was no printing um, and uh, none of some of the features that we expect for, um, say, the, the, the propagation of nationalist views the past. So what we're finding here then is, is, is in a sense rather like when we look at Islam in practice or indeed actual living Muslim communities in any region of the Muslim world, we find things that are actually distinct and regional to them, but are also part of, in a sense, continuum, continuums or, or wider yeah. patterns elsewhere. Because what, what the type of religiosity, this sort of shrine and pilgrimage-based Muslim religiosity, it would be a misunderstanding to think, oh, this is just what these people up in in Xinjiang, in the backwaters of Central Asia, in these deserts and oases, they, they didn't grasp what Islam was. This is just some regional aberration because these shrines, this shrine-based, pilgrimage-based Islam was found throughout the Islamic world. Indeed, in you know, not least in, you know, so to speak, the, the heartlands, if you want to think of that way, in, in the Middle East, whether in Egypt or right. indeed in Arabia before the, the, the Saudi takeover in the 1930s. And yet, at the same time, the architectural expression particularly of these mud-based shrines, is so absolutely distinctive to the area. Yeah. And that kind of continuity too, or that kind of regional distinctiveness and, and inter-regional, uh, I guess, kind of connectiveness is, is reflected in the manuscript tradition as well. Isn't it? As you said, this word tazkara is, is, is a word that from, is from the Arabic, isn't it? Dhikr, memory, mm -hmm. that then goes into as a Persian genre, the, the book of memory, so to speak, or indeed what might say a, a hagiography. Uh, the history of a saint, and indeed then becomes a major genre in in what becomes Xinjiang in 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 uh, it, itself.
as you've already hinted there, many of these shrines and the people buried or commemorated in them became subjects of these manuscript books. There's no printing until the 20th, early 20th century, or even, even the 1930s in, in the region. So what do these manuscript books tell us then about the interplay between Islam, identity and place in Xinjiang and among the, the Uyghurs? Um, yeah, these, so this, this Tezkira uh, genre and the, the use of the word Tezkira in this context in Eastern Turkestan, later to be known as Xinjiang, um, is, is very much a marker of continuity. It does come from um, the Persian and Central Asian tradition of hagiography, which is often a compilation of multiple uh, multiple biographies. And so it's really the, the closest thing you can choose from the classical, you know, library of genres to describe a, a text talking about a saint at, at a tomb. Um, but what happens is that there develops a, uh, a sense on the part probably of the, the custodians of the tombs, but perhaps some other kind of local patriots that a, a really important tomb really important shrine should have a book to go with it. And so you start to see the attachment of, of narrative material that clearly comes from elsewhere. Uh, as I mentioned, the seven sleepers of Ephesus um, are thought then to have, their cave is thought to be near Turfan, which is near the, the border with China proper, um, or the uh, Siawush from the Shah, uh, Shahnameh, this you know, famous uh, Persian epic of, of Firdosi. He's also thought to be uh, buried. So, so you get these narrative material from other sources attaching. So yes, and, and you've raised the, yeah, the seven sleepers of Ephesus, which would have been a Christian legend and then becomes a, a very important narrative in the Quran of the Ashab al-Kaf, isn't it? The, the, mm -hmm. the, the people of the, the, the cave. And yeah, and that Ephesus, of course, in what's now Western Turkey, isn't it? Western Anatolia on the right. coast of the Mediterranean. And, and that gets yeah. in a sense relocated to Turpan, this real Central Asian oasis in, you know, in a sense, almost in the geographical middle of what's now China. And that's, I think, a really good example, Ryan, that you've chosen there, because with the Ashab al-Kaf, the, the seven sleepers, and what their local name is in Uyghur, I mean, I don't know, uh, but, but there's that sense of, yeah, this isn't some kind of, you know, folk aberration of Islam. This is actually, these are kind of Quranic stories, but people in Xinjiang or, or, or Central Asia of the century, they're not going to be able to travel realistically all the way to, to Ephesus and the Mediterranean. So in a sense, their pilgrimage there is a Quranic pilgrimage. And yet yeah. it is there within their, wrapped up in their own traditions. And ultimately, as you said, with these Tuscanas, with narratives and stories in their own language, not in Arabic, which of course, very few yeah. Uyghurs could understand. Yeah, one of the things that's absolutely unremarkable or not extraordinary about the uh, Uyghur case is, is this um, connecting of narrative material that comes ultimately from the Middle East or the biblical tradition or the Quranic tradition to, to a holy place. For example, uh, the shrine of Adam in, in Sri Lanka or, you know, I mean, there are just countless examples of figures who are, you know, historically well-documented or come from um, religious traditions centered on the, on the edge of the Mediterranean or Babylonia being given 
graves or stopping places in shrines all over uh, the, the Muslim Muslim majority world. So in that case, it's it's quite normal, and I think it speaks to the desire to find not just an authentic a textual authenticity, which I think it's easier for us in the world we live in today to expect that um, a, um, a religious seeker or, or just someone who, who, who wants to engage with the supernatural, that they would first and foremost demand textual authenticity and textual authority. But I think what this shows is perhaps a universal desire for geographical authority and geographical authenticity. People wanna be in the presence of the divine not just read the words of, of, of the divine. And so I think this is one, uh, one expression of that. And you asked about how this then connects to identity and connects Islam with, with identity. That search for the presence of the divine, lining up as it does in a very powerful way in the Uyghur case with the place where people learn about their local history makes an unusually tight link between the sacred, the divine, and the, the past as it relates to us as a community, whoever, whoever that might be, as the those people of the local community that the pilgrims, um, the pilgrims come from. And then that is multiplied and made regional by the fact that these history learning nodes are pilgrimage places, meaning <laughs> People are coming from a very long way away to, to do these places, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. They're coming to visit these holy places. And so the stories they learn there in the presence of the very historical figure they're learning about, the saint, as they seek religious and, and uh, authority and divine presence, they bring those stories back to their uh, home territories, creating some sort of shared historical vision of, of, of who the community is. Um, uh, over the centuries. That's right, that roots them absolutely to their territory, to their homeland, but also mm -hmm. in a sense has these echoes and these, I, I guess in a sense, geologic, genealogical, cha genealogical change, change as Muslims, takes them back to whether Ephesus or indeed to, to, to yes. Mecca or, or elsewhere. <laughs> We've started exploring this, this textual genre in manuscripts, at least until the 20th century, called the Tazkara, the book of memory, the hagiography that describes the people buried or commemorated in these various shrines. And, and this genre has a long history, so a bit, you know, kind of in, in the Middle East, in, in India, as well as in the region that becomes Xinjiang. And it has a long continuity in that region as, as well, we, had, we, we assume at least, that goes back certainly in oral form, at least presumably, before the, the, the Qing Chinese imperial conquest of what, what it gets called Xinjiang, the new territories, the new imperial Chinese territories that are conquered in the 1750s and, 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 and early 60s. So can you tell us more about how this genre of the, the Tazkara develops in the region we now, and certainly from the 1750s called Xinjiang, and perhaps give us a, an example of one of these Tazkadas, one of these books of spatial and sacred memory. Yeah. Well, the there are several books that call themselves Tazkira or call themselves by the name of related uh, genre called um, Manakib, which are 
talk about the deeds of a, of a Sufi saint, uh, the deeds and words of a, of a Sufi saint, very similar to Hezkara. And these, these um, several of these are written in the Western part of Central Asia and come in um, and are, are taken up and read in, um, in Eastern Turkestan in the 17th, uh, this really the 16th and the 17th centuries um, AD. And some of those books become attached to shrines. So for example, uh, a figure named Sultan Satuk Bograhan, who is um, thought to be the first, um, Turk, the first Turkic person to, take, to convert to Islam uh, in the 10th century or the 9th century um, AD. Um, and he is buried not too in a town of uh, Atush, which is not too far from uh, Kashgar. And there is a tezkira written probably in the western part of Turkestan, but possibly in the eastern part, which is the classic kind of te tezkira that you would expect if you were an expert on uh, classical Persian literature, in that it has multiple biographies. It's, it's, I forget how many it is, 36 or something like that, 72 maybe. Um, and one of those biographies is Sultan Satu Bohrahan. So what happens is people take that one slice out and start to circulate it as its own book because that is then becomes the book of the shrine of Sultan Satu Bohrahan near, uh, near Kashgar. Another transformation that happens is that the book moves from Persian into uh, Turki, the language of uh, the Turkic uh, language of settled people in, in Central Asia. Um, and that is part of a larger trend in the late uh, 17th and throughout the 18th century for people to start writing more and more in the vernacular Turkey language and less and less in Persian. So much so that by the 19th century, we have almost nothing, there are a few exceptions, but almost nothing being composed in Persian. And throughout the 18th century, numerous translation projects moving things from Persian into uh, the local uh, the local Turkey uh, language. And the Sultan Satuk Bolrahan um, Tezkira, which talks about his, some of his miracles that he performs, how he uh, makes the state of Kashgar into an Islamic place, um, how he evades his uncle, um, doesn't, who's a Buddhist, doesn't want him to become a Muslim and, and, and says, I, um, you must build a Buddhist temple or, or I will kill you. And Sultan Satupulra Khan says, okay. And he builds the temple, but he says, I build this with the intent that it is a mosque. And very soon after he managed to have a rebellion and turn the temple back into the mosque that he intended to be. Um, so these kind of uh, sort of uh, stories are throughout the book. This becomes popular enough that in the 1980s, when you get this brief window where the Chinese government allows Uyghurs to publish fiction and literature uh, in their own language um, with some freedom, um, this, become, this gets turned into a historical novel, which is one of the most popular um, novels in, uh, in, in um, Xinjiang in the 1980s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, a widely read novel of Sultan Satuk Bohrakhan. So you can see a wide continuity um, over four or five uh, centuries.
I, I, I have to emphasize, though, that while I've chosen as an example something that actually came from what is widely regarded elsewhere as the Tezkira genre, many of the Tezkiras come from something completely different. Uh, a large number of them come from these Turkic epic war poems, which commemorate war victories from the 11th and 12th centuries and may very well have circulated as epic poems for five or six centuries before being written down as a quote tezkira. Why tezkira? Because, well, that's the book we all know explains what a shrine is. So then these Turkic epic war poems get written down and uh, at least a half a dozen, maybe a dozen of the important tezkiras um, uh, of the Uyghurs are, come from this epic war, uh, war poem um, uh, genre. Many, for example, the, all of Sultan Satupur Rahan's children have, who have a tezkira, it comes from this uh, war poem uh, genre. So again, we see this, this intense locality and not least with, with the language that becomes then Uyghur in the, in the 20th century, becomes called Uyghur with its own distinctive version of the, the, the Arabic script as well. And this continuity, as you've mentioned in the, in the narrative, the traveling tale, I suppose, of, of Satuk Bukhra Khan as it comes from the Western regions of Central Asia through into the Eastern regions, which, which are now part of, uh, of China. And indeed, again, these kind of these, these, these continuities, these patterns, whether stories of warriors or indeed of martyrs or stories or indeed the actual brotherhoods of the Sufis, you know, these are again, these the kind of, in a sense, the connecting organizational fabric in some ways with the Sufi orders, but also the connecting kind of narrative and commemorative fabric as well, how, how people remember. I think it's also worth pointing out to our listeners too, isn't it, just how important those regions of, of, of what you mentioned, Western Central Asia, if we looked on the map now in particular, what would be this, the modern states, the 20th century states of Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, how important they were for the Naqshbandi Sufi order the Sufi right. order, Sufi brotherhood that spreads into the Ottoman Empire becomes enormously influential in Afghanistan and Pakistan and India, where it's still extremely influential in, in Turkey today and in Pakistan as well as Afghanistan today as well. And that Naqshbandi Sufi order also moves eastwards into, into uh, Xinjiang as well. But nonetheless, as you pointed out, not all of these Tazkadas are about Sufis. They can be about warriors, about martyrs, about Quranic figures like the, the seven sleepers of, of Ephesus or indeed of Turpan, as it turns out in Xinjiang, or perhaps uh, other figures as well. And of course, what we're getting to is this picture that you're painting for us of kind of continuities, but also some quite significant changes uh, in historical memory of relations to place and indeed of, of the of the genres, the written genres of memory from these manuscripts of Tuscadas to printed historical novels of the, the later 20th century. So as we've already sort of hinted at, the, the, this area of the eastern parts of Central Asia, the geographically eastern Turkestan, or what we now call Xinjiang, becomes part of China in 1759, effectively, with the Qing imperial conquest. And the Qing empire, founded in 1644, continues to exist until 1912. And, and, and during those um, couple of hundred, uh, well, I guess 150 years of Qing imperial rule over Xinjiang, 
there's a lot of local autonomy, autonomy, isn't it? With local Uyghur yeah. elites yeah. and rulers who are continuing to patronize the shrines, the pilgrimages continue, these texts continue to evolve. Yeah. And in the early 20th century, particularly, I think, if I remember from your work, the 1930s, printing emerges too, partly in a sense from the Swedish missionaries who turn up and also right. from the Turkic Tatar Muslims of the Russian Empire, which is also on yeah. the, the western end of uh, of the borders that are drawn up with uh, between the, the, the Chinese and Russian empires they're drawn up in the 19th century. So looking into the 20th century then, the period of after the, the, the decline, the collapse of the Qing Empire in 1912, the rise of Republican China, and from 1949 onwards of the People's Republic of China, that uh, is still the state of China today. How did the, the Uyghurs' understanding of their past change then over the course of the 20th and indeed even the early 21st century? Yeah, this period sees radical change because as you mentioned, the Qing conquest of 1759-1760, um, while it certainly brought change, uh, allowed a lot of what was happening already to continue. And, in many ways, it's not really until the People's Republic of China takes control of the region in, in 1949 and thereafter that we see both a desire and an ability um, from a Chinese-based state to really uh, enact serious change or inflict serious change um, on the Uyghur population. And so the changes that we see in the early part of the 20th century are more of a reflection of global processes. Um, one of the very important ones is the spread of the idea of the nation, the spread of the idea of, of, an, of an ethnic group, as we call it today, um, which Uyghur business people who traveled, Uyghur scholars who traveled um, uh, more widely throughout uh, Asia, picked up um, many of them from the Tatars of, of Russia, who, who were in turn very much in tune with intellectual developments in uh, Istanbul and the, the Ottoman Empire more general. So some of these ideas, more generally, some of these ideas are, uh, for example, pan-Turkism, um, pan-Islamism, pan uh, ref Islamic reform returns to the authoritative texts of the Quran and, and the Hadith and attempts to eliminate interpretive um, bridges historically between those and the, and the present and to go including back and these, do new and Including these Tazkiras, of course. Including these Tazkiras and there are uh, quite a number of reformers who really don't like the shrines and um, write some uh, pretty virulent screeds against them as uh, places that preserve um, pagan rituals and, and, and uh, encourage superstition. Um, but one of the most important ideas that enters is the idea that we, at, at this point, let's say in 1900, the people that you and I are calling Uyghurs right now did not call themselves Uyghurs. In their text, you will not find a manuscript that says Uyghur in it. They called themselves either Musulman, which means Muslim, or sometimes Turkey, or talked about their language at least as Turkey, very rarely as Altishaharlik, people from the, from the six cities as they called their um, region. 
Um, and some of the intellectuals who were more in touch with these global thought patterns um, suddenly got the idea that they needed an ethnonym for themselves. Um, and several of them began to promote the idea that they were the uh, descendants of an empire from roughly a thousand years earlier called the Uyghur Empire, an empire that had been um, sometimes Buddhist, sometimes Manichaean in its state uh, religion. And they looked at the history that uh, Russian Orientalists were producing um, uh, during, their, during these Uyghurs' travels in the Russian Empire and in the Soviet Union, um, and they, they saw this, they learned about this Uyghur Empire and thought that must be who we, uh, who we are. And they were very successful in ultimately after you know, decades of struggle and argument over what their name would be and who would be included. Um, ultimately, this idea was incredibly successful that the settled Turkic speaking peoples of Eastern Turkestan or Xinjiang were an ethnic group called the Uyghurs. And, it didn't hurt that the Soviet Union had an, eth an ethnicities or nationalities policy that formalized ethnic groups and gave political support to them. And there were people under Soviet rule who were speaking the same language, who had roots in, in uh, what is now Xinjiang, and they were able to codify their ethnicity under the Soviets. And that, that kind of moved back into Xinjiang under some Soviet friendly um, uh, under a Soviet-friendly government, and the Uyghurs became an official um, official ethnicity, as they are now in China to this day. And all this happens at the same time. Printing is coming in. Uh, printing doesn't take off in, in Xinjiang the way it does in much of the world. It doesn't take off through capitalism, through the marketplace for books. It takes off because states recognize the power of printing, and they use it to disseminate their ideas. Um, and so we get a lot of newspapers um, with state backing uh, spreading, uh, spreading print uh, in the region. And at the same time, we have the emergence of independent states. There are two rebellions that create independent states of East, Eastern Turkestan, one in uh, the 30s, one in the 1940s. And all of this ultimately, I think, you know, once the, the People's Republic of China comes in, I think the big change that has occurred in those 50 years is that at least the elites are starting to see themselves as Uyghurs. It is an official category and they have a nationalistic understanding of what identity is. That is to say a sense that there is this um, root identity which ideally should align with the borders of the state, with, with, the, with the government. Um, and that is a kind of, a, it's a very, a very new thing. It comes with other assumptions uh, that we might talk about um, in, a, in a little bit here. Um, and it's, this comes to completely transform the relationship between place and history. Um, so for example, nationalism promotes the idea that a hero of the nation would be somebody born in the nation, right? I mean, that's where etymologically the word nation comes from, the Latin for to, to be born. But these saints of, of the Uyghurs, most of them were born outside of the region and they become heroes of the nation by dying in the nation, not by being born there. 
So once ne- the nationalist way of understanding identity takes over, they flip, they flip it and they start, to, they start to pay less attention to those saints born outside. And they take those few very special saints. One of them is Sultan Saktu Bolrahan, who we already talked about. Those very few who were actually born in the weaker region and they start to promote those as the uh, national heroes. And this in turn has very real, sometimes quite literally concrete implications for the places of historical memory and identity themselves, i.e. the different shrines and mausolea. And Mm -hmm. the relationship then between 20th century, late 20th century Uyghur elites Uh, and indeed between the People's Republic of China and its officials and these different shrines. Some shrines are commemorated, rebuilt, extended, including that, if I'm correct, of of Satuk Bukhrakhan at Artush, which I think was rebuilt in the the mid-1990s with a a leader architect, I believe. And other shrines, many of, even some of the most famous ones, like Ordam Badshah, the Yangi Hisar outside in Kashgar region, which I think both of us had tried unsuccessfully to visit, those yeah. older pilgrimage places, those are uh, not so much persona non grata, but I don't know, kind of locus non grata or something. You, you, you're not able yeah. to visit them anymore, whether outsiders, nor indeed Uyghurs themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the interesting um, things that, uh, that I think this example shows us is that uh, there's an expectation that when nationalism comes in, I mean, nationalism is such... The, the, the switch to a nationalist way of viewing the world. And, and I would argue that you and I and everyone listening to this, whether we consider ourselves nationalists or not, we have a national view of, of the world. We are imbued, we are raised in this sense of the world being cut up into nations that should have self, self-rule. This way of thinking about the world, we tend to assume that it just bulldozes everything and that the history of the rise of nationalism in place X, Y, or Z is really the story of how people adapt their, the content of their story to this way of thinking. And I think one of the things that the story of the Uyghurs and Altushahar reminds us is that the people on the ground often change the language of, of nationalism. So for example, with Sultan Satuk Bolrahan, they're not using, giving the usual historical novel, they're giving a historical novel that's often associated with nationalism. They're giving a historical novel that follows the generic um, uh, format of the Tezkira, which comes from their older way of understanding place. And so there are a lot of survivals of these deeper ways of understanding place. How that relates to the, the current Chinese government is that um, I think the state today recognizes the power of these alternative ways of making identity. And the, much of the nationalist infrastructure of history and identity, text, history textbooks, museums, libraries, these are things well in control, well in the realm of the state's bureaucratic control and a little bit easier for them to uh, to manipulate. But when local officials see tens of thousands of pilgrims coming to a mound of earth with flags on it in the desert, they recognize where the limits of their control over culture and identity and people's imaginations, and even over medical care, which states are famous, something states are famously jealous of, um, they see where the limits are.
And so unfortunately, in the last few years, the state has taken the ultimate step to control that um, in recognizing the power of these shrines. And they, Ordan Pacha, which you mentioned, has now actually been destroyed. As has Imam Asim, the shrine that I gave you an example. Well, that one's only been desecrated. Uh, but also Imam Jafri Sadiq, another very important one. Uh, the state has actually brought earth moving equipment out into these rather arbitrary points in the desert and flattened uh, these shrines and turned them back into, um, into uh, empty, empty dunes, which I think says a lot about uh, the power of, of these places. And this of course is part of a larger uh, set of policies that include um, uh, concentration camps, for around 10% of the population, um, uh, schools, residential schools, which raise Uyghur children as, as ethnic Chinese um, and sterilization programs, which are clearly aimed to uproot Uyghur culture. Um, but I think it says a lot that when the state decides to uproot Uyghur culture, uh, one of their primary targets are these, uh, are these shrines. Yes, because we often think of censorship as being in the sense, in the literary and the textual realm, don't we? That yes, the, the, the destruction of, of places is is no less and perhaps even more powerful than particularly in this context that you've talked about over the centuries, when the literary, the textual, and the spatial were were in, interdependent in a sense, really. One produced right. and explained and made relevant the other. So, yeah. so in a sense, there is this sort of spatial censorship as well that is is part of this larger larger uh, set of policies of the Chinese government. So taking the developments we've discussed as a whole, what does the Uyghur experience and the history of Xinjiang tell us about changing ways in which Muslims have identified with place? I think, first of all, what it tells us, or maybe what it, I should say, what it reminds us is that, that Muslims' relationships with place and their relationship of place to identity and to faith um, has been widely varied uh, and widely diverse uh, uh, across the, the parts of the world where Muslims have been predominant. Um, so for example, if you think of the well-known local histories of of the Persian tradition in which you have a, a, um, a local history of a town like Shiraz and you collect all the biographies of all the famous scholars who've been there. That's a quite a different understanding of place for one because you're promoting simply one city rather than a region and of who makes a place special, the religious scholars. That, that's, and you're, you're promoting this idea without it actually being linked to a physical structure in Shiraz. So this is this would be a very different way of, of creating a local Shirazi patriotism through text, very different from what, what we've been talking about today for Altishahar. So I think that's one of the one of the takeaways for me is this, the incredible variety of relationships between place uh, and identity. And one of the reasons that's important is because of this incredible power of uh, nationalism as, as a way of understanding identity in place across the planet, which I think really lures us into thinking that there's a greater amount of homogeneity than there is. On the one hand, 
nationalism has created incredible homogeneity in any majority Muslim country. You can see just you know, widespread nationalism and, and even pan-Islamism, which is supposed to be anti-nationalist, actually has the sort of logic of nationalism um, within it. But again, here, the Uyghur case reminds us that if we just look at how various nationalisms struggle against each other, say the Chinese nationalism of the People's Republic and the Uyghur nationalism of people who want, say, an independent Uyghur state, that we're missing something, that we're missing what came before, not only what came before nationalism, but what has continued to shape nationalism and the continued role for Islam and practices that we would call Islamic in, in that creation and perpetuation um, of, of identity. And there's no greater sign of the significance of that continued functioning of longstanding approaches to place and identity than the Chinese government's um, uh, great expense and risk that it's taking in destroying these, these holy places. On that sobering note, Ryan Thump, thank you for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. You're welcome, it was a great pleasure. Da 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 da